Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Plymouth Plantation occupies a powerful place in American national memory. Think of the first Thanksgiving in 1621, Englishmen escaping religious persecution, the rock marking the alleged spot where settlers first landed, and of course, the Mayflower Compact. In the wake of the American Revolution, citizens of the new nation looked to the compact for the origins of American democracy. In Plymouth's history, many Americans saw the history of the United States itself. But Plymouth has become shrouded in memory. We often see it as an isolated outpost of religious dissenters who made a pilgrimage into the American wilderness, when in reality, it was so much more. On today's episode, Dr. Carla Gardenia Pastana takes us back to those distant, frigid shores for a new look at an old place. She is the author of The World of Plymouth Plantation, just out from Belknap Press. And as you'll hear, Plymouth was a much bigger world than you might imagine. So get the turkey out of the oven, gather around the table, and let's plant the world of Plymouth Plantation with Dr. Carla Gardenia Pastana. You know, Carla, I was thinking as I was prepping for our talk today that although we saw each other at the American Historical Association meeting in 2016, yes, that's right. I think the I think the last substantive conversation we had it was was at my master's thesis defense a long time ago. That's kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about your book on Plymouth Plantation today, and I think it's fair to say that when you say the phrase Plymouth Plantation. That conjures up a few different ideas or a few specific ideas in people's minds that capture their imagination and, and feature in our popular culture and national narrative. So let's pretend that you are not an expert on this subject matter and that you didn't just write this book. And I asked you, so what's the big deal about Plymouth? What would you might expect an ordinary person to say? Well, Plymouth is an interesting case because it's very well known to people who are educated in the United States because of how it's how it's presented to school children, which is quite a different way for something to become part of the national national narrative, it seems to me. I mean, we know Plymouth in a series of vignettes. We know Thanksgiving. Children in particular often know Squanto and the meeting with Squanto and maybe also, you know, that he taught the new English arrivals how to plant corn. In the 19th century, the average person knew a lot about the Mayflower Compact, although that has fallen into some some disfavor in terms of how Plymouth and, and its legacy is remembered. So there's, you know, there's a series of these. And of course, people know about Plymouth because if you can trace yourself back to the Mayflower as a Mayflower descendant, that's supposed to be kind of the best possible genealogical outcome for, for someone who's studying, you know, their family's history and how, how it interacts sex with U.S. history. There's these kind of moments stepping ashore onto a rock to be one of those first Plymouth arrivals off of the Mayflower or the meeting with the natives or the harvest celebration feast that, you know, is celebrated. And, you know, there's a series of those kind of moments that are remembered and that were that were pulled out of this out of the Plymouth narrative to be promoted because they support certain values. I mean, obviously, Thanksgiving is about family getting together, but it's also about sacrifice and hard work and being grateful and piety. And so there's a, a sort of set of messages that each of these has attached to them that was seen worth promoting in the late 18th and in the 19th centuries. And so they've carried forward into our own time as kind of the way many Americans think about colonial America, this kind of very early moment in the history of New England. So why is it that these things have become uplifted, as you suggest? I guess it's it makes sense to say that they have become core American values. What explains that? 
Well, Plymouth starts being promoted by people who lived in Plymouth, who were descended from the original arrivals in in some cases. And they were first interested in the firstness of Plymouth that this was the first place in New England. And so it was the 1740s when they started trying to find where was the landing site. And that was when they hit on the rock. <laughs> <laughs> and the rock is a great, has a great story because, of course, they found the rock by getting a very old man who had, in fact, not been there at the time of the landing because, you know, nobody who was alive in 1740 had been there in 1620. But they found a very old man who who they took out to the beach and he identified this boulder. And then... I mean, if this is if what they want to do is mark a place where people came ashore to say, you know, these are the first and this is where they did it. The fact that they then immediately started dragging it around town and putting it in other locations is just completely bizarre. But that is, in fact, what happened. Uh, They drug it around and they also broke it. So there's that. Now, of course, it's in a kind of Grecian temple sitting on the side of the highway, you know, at the edge of the water. And you can stand on the sidewalk and peer down into this, you know, sitting on the sand. So it's like they tried to put it sort of back on a place where the landing might have happened, only it's not really the place. You know, and that was about people in Plymouth saying our little out of the way town that sort of seems inconsequential in the larger Massachusetts or New England context in this moment is in fact very important because it's the first. It was kind of local promotion of that history. And of course, it didn't matter at the time that Virginia had in fact been founded first because who cares about, you know, I mean, it wasn't wasn't part of a U.S. narrative then because it was before the American Revolution. So it was just a local kind of trying to take precedence. And subsequently, a regular celebration of Plymouth got started and a kind of Plymouth day that where people would gather and give speeches and parade around. And that is the original venue in which speakers would come and talk about what Plymouth meant. Somebody like John Quincy Adams, who participated in in this in the 1790s, was in fact himself a descendant. They would often get sort of famous men who were somehow connected and get them to come and give these speeches. And these speeches were published. In order to prepare these speeches, these people looked back at the at the surviving documentation and thought about the legacy and, and made speeches that foregrounded things about the Plymouth experience. Plymouth is benefits from the fact that there are a number of written accounts of the very beginning of its establishment that were published within a year or so of them being written in London. And so we do have these early written accounts, two in particular, that basically talk about the early years. And so they include lots of little stories about encounters with natives and first coming ashore and even a reference to a to a harvest celebration although that's like one sentence <laughs> you know in the fall of of 1621 so the people who who were thinking about Plymouth and about its importance had lots of material to draw upon and pulled out things cuz they wanted to make a point that this landing in 1620 on the shores of New England at the beginning of winter was an important moment in the history of the United States, a hundred and some years before the founding of the United States. But they're creating a kind of colonial past that that they want to hook into their current moment. 
they care about things like democracy. And therefore, they look at the Mayflower Compact and say, this was a democratic document that was establishing uh, the basis on which this group of men would organize their government. And therefore, it's in some ways anticipating the American Revolution and the founding documents of the United States. Or they would say this gathering of people to celebrate the the harvest at the end of a year and show their gratitude and meet with their native neighbors. This is a sign of the piety and the hard work and the sacrifice that goes into being successful in this environment. And this is exactly the kind of society that we are building in the early United States. So they went back and they picked out, there's lots of stories that don't get picked out that are equally vivid and interesting, but they don't serve the purposes that the, that the people who are promoting Plymouth see it as serving for the current moment in which they are writing. That's how certain things get foregrounded and other things don't. Some things that the, the, the participants at the time thought were fairly inconsequential, like the Mayflower Compact, gets pulled out and made a, a much bigger deal of than, than the people who, who signed it would have thought it warranted, for instance. But it's because it's a kind of dynamic between what documents there are that describe what events in the moment of the early 17th century, and then what desires there are to find elements that tell a certain kind of story that will help promote the United States in the, in the late 18th and into the 19th centuries. It's a fascinating example, the difference between historical memory and history itself. Yes, I think that's right. And it's so funny. I mean, I, when I was reading about all this in preparation for writing this book, one of the funny things I found was that there's this obsession with whether or not the quote unquote pilgrims were communists, <laughs> which I had not anticipated at all. But there's, you know, they they arrive owing a debt to their investors. And, and their thinking is we all together owe a debt to these investors and we have to figure out a way to clear that debt. So we need to work together to do that. And in addition to that concern, they arrive and it's winter and they're, they're, some of them are already sick and it's, they're facing something very difficult. So they also think we need to work together to build some structures and get in out of the cold. <laughs> so, you know, rather than going off and being very individualistic and each family building their own house, they all club together and build these structures and distribute them among the people who are there. So this kind of collective activity that that they participated in, both to pay the debt and to just set themselves up, gets described in the later literature by some people who see it as a positive thing, as sort of Christian socialism. I mean, in the 19th century, there's a way in which this is seen as like these are our pious people working together for the common good, and that's positive. But then when the Cold War comes along, it seems like a really scandalous suggestion. And there's lots of back and forth in newspapers and other publications about people being affronted that it was suggested that the pilgrims were communists and then people defending the idea. And, and you can still find on the internet today, you can still find people that are that will get exercised over this question. I had never imagined thinking of the pilgrims as cold warriors, but now I will. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, someone wants you to think that. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's kind of the mythos behind Plymouth Plantation and how it's been used for various purposes since the 18th century. So let's look at the real Plymouth, the Plymouth, you might say. Why did English settlers go there in the first place? What were their objectives? 
Well, they weren't going to Plymouth, <laughs> is the first thing to consider. The people who set out, first they set out in two ships earlier in 1620, and then one of them is leaky, and they have to go back to port and kind of readjust who's going, what can they take, and they end up just on the one ship. The name of which doesn't actually get mentioned in the records, which is really interesting given how Mayflower has come to stand for, you know, has come to stand for the people who first came. But they end up just on this one ship and they are hoping to go to Northern Virginia, which is basically probably around Delaware, because Virginia had a much broader it was assigned a, lar a larger area of the coast <laughs> when it was first founded, as well as obviously going so far in, into the interior as to go to the opposite, what they consider at the time they're drawing up the charter to be the opposite shore, which of course <laughs> would be the Pacific and is a bit further away than they envisioned. But they have made an agreement with the Virginia Company of London, which controls the colony of Virginia at that time, that they will go to Northern Virginia, and they will have a certain amount of autonomy to set themselves up there in their own outpost. They'll be the first settlers that the Virginians, the Virginia Company has sent to that region. And they will, so they will be under the general authority of Virginia, but they will be in this sort of northern outpost that they will settle in. And that's the that's the scheme. That's what they are planning to do when they when they sail. But they arrive in basically in Cape Cod Bay and it's and winter is upon them and they decide they're just going to stay there because they don't really want to get back in the ship and try to navigate around Cape Cod and, and find this place where they're supposed to go because it's December and they're starting to worry about what that's going to mean in terms of the weather, et cetera. So they end up basically squatting. I mean, is what, you know, they're not there with anybody's permission in terms of European authorities that would have sanctioned their arrival in that location. There is actually a Virginia company of Plymouth, which controls New England sort of vaguely at that time. So they, they have some thought that they're going to need to go back to England and get permission to be where they are, probably. But, you know, at the time, they just in, in almost an emergency, they just decide they're going to stay where they are. The reason why they went, I mean, English people are starting to think of going to these outposts that are developing in the Atlantic world by about 1620. When the group of people left England and went to the Netherlands originally going to the into a colony in the Americas wasn't didn't really seem like a viable option but by the time some of those people who had left England and gone to live in Leiden and join a church that was founded there um, were thinking about traveling to the Americas, it had become something that seemed more viable. They're at the beginning following the people who went to Virginia and the people who went to Bermuda, which was founded as a colony in 1618. And the news has gotten better enough that it starts to seem like it might be a place that you could go. So their idea is that they're going to go and they're going to colonize. About half the people who went had been associated with this church in the Netherlands. And they explain why they feel like they need to leave the Netherlands later on. And, and they give a couple of explanations. One is that they feel that they're going to have difficulty keeping their children close 
because their children are doing what immigrant children do, which is they're learning the local language, they're getting more incorporated into the local society and culture, et cetera. And they feel like this little enclave of English people centered around this church that they've founded is going to disperse. And so they have the sense that if they could get into an English colony where everyone was English and there wasn't the kind of possibility of, of joining into a larger society that was vibrant and economically successful, et cetera, then maybe they would succeed in, in their efforts to create a, an English church that would stand out separate from, from the larger society. About half the people who go are not members of the church. They are other people who want to go to an American colony, who are recruited by the investors because they have skills or whatever. The narrative is always told from the point of view of the Leiden group because they're the ones who wrote the description <laughs> that survive and they made that connection back to the Netherlands, but they're not the only people who are involved. So some of the people are just going because going to an American colony has started to seem like a thing that, that could be worthwhile. And some of them go because they're specifically trying to plant a version of this church in a new location and, and move their community from the Netherlands to this new location. And because the church-going folks are the ones who write the sources, is that the reason we focus on ideas of religious separatism and celebrate that angle? Certainly. The way this narrative goes is that the Protestant Reformation in England was a good thing, but it was incomplete. And therefore, a small church was founded in Nottinghamshire that eventually decide, the members of the church decided that they needed to leave England and go to live in the Netherlands, where various English Protestants had already begun to go for a variety of different reasons. And the Netherlands had a fairly open attitude toward religious uh, diversity, and England did not. And so the idea that you would have a different version of Protestantism and be welcomed in England was one that they realized wasn't wasn't going to work out the way they wanted it to. So they decided and they have to they have to basically sneak out of the country and it's difficult and they leave very dramatic descriptions of the, of those efforts. But they end up in first in Amsterdam and then in Leiden. They found their own church with minister that they brought with them from England and they gather other English people to their church over the course of the time that they're there. And then they decide or some of them decide that they want to go and participate in this other in this other opportunity. And they agree before they go that whoever goes out of their church will basically be in communion with the people who stay in Leiden. So anybody from Leiden Church who wants to go to whatever church they find found in the Americas will be like automatically a member of this new church. So they're kind of it's kind of like it's it's the same religious organization only split in two and you know now in two locations. They think their minister is going to join them and and other members of the church are going to join them. And some other members do but the but the minister never does and he dies in Leiden some years after they after they migrate. So their separatism from the Church of England had been the reason why they went to Leiden and that then becomes the story of religious persecution and coming for religious freedom is tied to that issue. 
So you've got these two groups essentially coming. One has a religious component. The other is just folks looking to immigrate to North America and settle in the colonies because they have these skills. What does the indigenous landscape look like when European settlers arrive? Who do they encounter and how has their world already been shaped by a European presence? Yes, well, Europeans had been going um, into New England on sort of brief visits for some time. There's lots of European activity in the in further north, in the around the fisheries, cod fishing in the North Atlantic, and fleets of fishing vessels go every summer and and fish that region, setting up temporary bases on land to dry the fish and then drying it and packing it back into the ships and then sailing back to Europe. So there's not a year-round European population, but there is this practice of annually. Now, by 1620, there's there's tens of thousands of people that are going to the, participate in this fishing. And because of all that activity, there's just Europeans in the general vicinity. And sometimes they sail down the coast of New England and interact with the native peoples there. In addition, there'd been an expedition to explore that region on the part of John Smith in uh, 1616 or 1615, 16, and they had gone up all through New England and drawn a map, et cetera. These visits had brought illness, had brought epidemic disease to the people in the region around what would become Plymouth. And large numbers of people had gotten sick and had died. And so the region immediately around Plymouth had had confronted only a few years before the effects of this epidemic disease and drastic population loss. You know, if they had come 10 years earlier, there would have been a lot more people living right there. Although the wintertime was not really a time for the Native peoples to be on the coast. They came down to the coast during the the months when the fish would be more plentiful, et cetera, et cetera. And then they went into the interior to hunt uh, at other times of the year. So at the moment that they arrived, the summer villages would have been empty anyway. But what they found were villages that looked abandoned, that hadn't been used even in the in the previous summer. And that was, they found out later, that was because of the really huge death rate that had impacted the local community. And what they do is they end up establishing their village at the native village site that appeared to them to have been abandoned. They take advantage of the fact that this site is already set up and that then that's where they go and they build their little village that they build with their houses and eventually a palisade around it. They encounter Native peoples at a distance. Initially, they hear them, they see them at a distance, but they don't interact with them until the local Native leader is able to get in touch with a man who knows some English. And he sends uh, Samoset in, and, and Samoset's English isn't great. He's learned it basically from the, from the fishing crews that have been in northern New England. But he does come in and he says, you know, I've been sent and I wanted to let you know that we, we do have somebody who can speak English better than me and he'll be coming and, you know, then we'll come and meet with you. And, the, and when Squanto comes down from northern New England, he becomes the emissary who they can really communicate with. But that takes, you know, that, that takes some months before that happens and before they're actually interacting directly with these Native peoples. Well, when they arrive on this land, it looks abandoned, as you note, due to disease, but also seasonal migration patterns amongst Native peoples. 
they set about building a plantation. And I, I want to ask you about that term because, of course, at a place like Mount Vernon or in Virginia or really anywhere in the South, that term has a very specific connotation that implies a, some kind of a state where enslaved laborers are toiling away to plant tobacco or corn or wheat or rice or other activities. The word has that modern meaning. And, I, and of course, as you point out in the book, too, Rhode Island's proper name is Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, and Rhode Island has a history of slavery as well. But what did that term plantation mean in the 17th century context? Right. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting example of how we hear a word differently than they hear it. What they mean is they're transplanting people. So there's a different way to go to a distant location if you're a European in this period and you want to benefit from some distant land. That other way is to just set up basically a trading post. And those are quite common in other locations. And they're set up by not only by the English, but by the Dutch and the French and the Portuguese. And, and a trading post is just a place that you staff with temporary male residents who are going to conduct the trade. They usually are prepared to provide defense and, and the mercantile activity that's going to go on. They don't come to Plymouth to do that. They come to Plymouth to settle with English people. In other words, to transplant English people to what they refer to as a plantation. They're picking up a population that they hope is going to settle and live there, form families, reproduce, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not an outpost, it's a plantation. And that's what they mean. In, in modern scholarly parlance, what they're talking about is settler colonialism. They're not talking about establishing what we think of as a plantation, which is an agricultural undertaking owned by an individual who employs enslaved labor toward the production of a crop for sale. Those ideas start to collapse together in the Atlantic world as people who come to the Americas to transplant in that form of a plantation end up establishing in certain locations these agricultural undertakings that are going to at first usually use indentured servants, but increasingly then use enslaved laborers. And so the meaning starts to shift so that a planter comes to mean somebody who owns one of these slave-employing plantations, and a plantation comes to mean that kind of an undertaking. When Rhode Island and Providence Plantation was founded in the 1630s, they're thinking of it as a place to settle. That's why they call Providence Plantation, Providence Plantation, the same reason why Plymouth gets called Plymouth Plantation. Uh, Rhode Island just recently voted to change the name of their state. They eliminated the Providence Plantation part. And Plymouth Plantation, the Living History Museum outside of Plymouth, recently changed its name, and it's now called Plymouth Patuxet, which is the name of the native village that the people who came to establish Plymouth Plantation took over when they landed and set up in this village site. The name has fallen into disfavor because of its association with racial slavery. You mentioned that folks have been writing histories of Plymouth almost since the beginning, and in part, those histories have helped to shape our national histories of that place. So I'm wondering then, when did you begin to think about writing a book on Plymouth? Um, it was probably about 10 years ago. I was invited by then Plymouth Plantation, the Living History Museum staff, to go and talk about 
well, they, they just invited a group of scholars and Native activists and Native representatives of local Native communities to come and talk to them about how they could improve their presentation of the history. And they have done this repeatedly over the years, had these kind of sessions where they they review and revise. And so I was invited to go to that. And it struck me that there's been this intense interest there to think more deeply about the Native aspect of the history. When Plymouth Plantation first opened, it didn't concern itself with that much at all. And now it's very much a part of the kind of interpretation they're trying to offer. And they were working hard on that when I was there, and I was totally supportive of them doing that because I do think that's a really important part of what they have to do. But I was really struck by how it was so intensely place-based as to be completely inward looking. Like it was just about what was happening right here and the connections to other other things that were going on at the same time and to other places in the Atlantic world was not something that they were interested in. And I actually brought it up a few times in the meeting, trying to draw attention to this. I failed. <laughs> they, you know, <laughs> they didn't, they didn't really pick up on that. But it just kept, it was one of those things that just kept niggling at the back of my mind that this was the thing I wanted to think about more. And when I finished my Jamaica book, it occurred to me that the anniversary was coming up. And I have never thought about an anniversary before. I'm always impressed by my friend, Clara Kupperman, because she always seems to think of them and to write books for them. And I never had. But I thought, well, you know, if I could if I could think through this Atlantic history thing, it might just be an article, but it might be a book that I could put out at, at this moment. That's how I got the idea was that I would combine my thinking about the Atlantic world with there was an anniversary coming up. I imagine the early part of your career was influential here as well. I started off in New England as a historian. My dissertation was about religious radicals in 17th and 18th century New England, Quakers and Baptists in particular, who got started in Massachusetts and were initially persecuted and then eventually made a place for themselves. And then from there, I went out into the Atlantic world and started thinking about how what I knew about New England from that first work fit into other things that were going on, including the history of the English Revolution, what was going on in the Caribbean, et cetera. Religiously, what were the trends, broadly speaking, throughout the British Atlantic world? So those were the books I had published in the past about religion in an Atlantic framework or about um, politics and empire in a more Atlantic framework. With Plymouth, I was kind of coming back to New England, but I was coming back to New England, bringing all this awareness of the Atlantic world that I had developed over the course of all these other projects. And I just thought, if you look at Plymouth from that perspective, how does it appear? Does it look different? And so that was basically the question that I, I started off asking myself when I was pulling together this book. So thinking about the source base then, and we've talked about those earlier histories, and we can talk more about those in detail if we want. But as you were thinking about constructing the world of Plymouth Plantation, that's, of course, the title of your book and how you're conceiving of it. How are you bringing that more Atlantic focus to bear to ask new questions of this material? Right. Well, I decided early on that I would just start with the basic earliest sources. So that's Bradford's manuscript of Plymouth Plantation and the couple of accounts that are written 
in the first couple of years. One by Edward Winslow, which is published in 1624, called Good News from New England. And a second earlier one that was under the title of A Relation or a Journal and had multiple authors and was published uh, anonymously. And then there's a sermon that's preached in Plymouth that's published in London in the early years. And there's legal and and colonial records that survive from the early period. And there's a few other things that are published around, like in the very early period, sort of around Plymouth, people who visit the region and comment on it. So I basically just sat down and read all of those things and made notes as I went on anything that connected to the Atlantic. So I just very literally like, oh, here's a ship arriving. Here's a piece of news. Here's a, you know, whatever kinds of things like, oh, they have no shoes and they need the investors to send them shoes. Like I just wrote it all. I just made like lists basically. And then once I I had it, I had two questions to answer. One is, is this, can I do something with this at all? Or do I need more? Do I need to rethink it? And then how would I organize this to make the point I'm trying to make in a way that would be interesting to read? And at some point it occurred to me, it could be, I think it was partly the anniversary that it could be a book that a popular audience would be interested in. Then I just really had to struggle over structure and how to make a kind of basically what's a a historiographical point about Plymouth being connected to the Atlantic world, but to make it in a kind of subtle way that wasn't, you now need to think about Atlantic history and what that means and where that came from and how that works. But, you know, to just kind of show it as as a reality of this history without making it super explicit. I want to talk about your structure here in just a minute, but going back to the point you made about making lists every time you saw something that was connected to the Atlantic world, I imagine then that you started running down sources in different places to find out where those connections led to? No, I didn't really. I said to somebody that I was chatting with about this book at some point is like, there would be a different way to write this if I was newly a historian. And this was my first project, but I already had been in the Caribbean and knew where the pirates were coming from, or rather privateers. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I already knew that side of the story. And this was the bringing it back. I was able to rely on the fact that I've been teaching colonial and Atlantic history for decades and that I already knew all the kind of I knew the other side. It was easy for me to to envision how the links worked on the other end, because that's where I had been prior to writing this. So this is a book you could not have written at the beginning of your career then. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think there's a danger for a very junior scholar to try to write a kind of book where it vaguely assumes a lot of knowledge that you don't actually pursue. Normally, a first book is deeply researched and you check every single thing and you you have a footnote to prove that this thing is a true thing. And I didn't want to write that kind of book. I just wanted to say, and by the way, you know, these privateers who were working with the Earl of Warwick, who I already know all about because I tracked him down for a previous book, wash up in in New England at this moment, which I can picture because I already figured it out for some, you know what I mean? So so I guess (laughs) I could have done a lot more ancillary research to explain all the connections, but I had the benefit of already having done that research in a funny way. That's a good lesson in saving your notes from past projects because they might come in handy. Well, tell me about the structure of your book then, because you've broken it into these six parts with triptych chapters in each part. 
And you were saying a moment ago that you were wrestling with the structure to say what you wanted to from a scholarly standpoint, but also to do so in a way that would be accessible to a broader audience. What was your thought process behind that? How did you eventually arrive at this structure? Well, first I thought, okay, I've got all these connections to the Atlantic world, but I need to tame them somehow because otherwise it's just going to be boring, like this connection, that connection, you know. So I started playing around with, you know, I thought, well, in Atlantic history, the circulation of objects, of people, of ideas, there's ways in which that history has been already organized. So if I bring that here and I start dividing down my lists, you know, what do I come up with in terms of like, if I, if I plug the things I found into those three categories, how much of what I've uncovered can be sort of addressed if I impose that kind of a template over it. So that was one project was kind of sorting, like, do these categories work if I start sorting my list? And I found by and large that they did. And then I thought, okay, but if I just did objects as a section of the book, and then I did ideas as a section of the book, and then I did categories of people as a section of the book, that seems sort of boring to me. It just seemed like it would be too much of of one thing and then... So then I thought, oh, well, there's got to be a way to intersperse them so that you read about tobacco and then you read about God, you know, instead of of reading only about ideas until you were sick of them and then turning to, you know, so then I had the idea of interspersing. Then it drove me absolutely nuts how to do the ordering of them. Like in what order do you do them? And I kept thinking, do you have to talk about this before you talk about that? And then I just thought, no, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to think of a logic that makes sense for laying them out. And then I'm going to try to apply that logic. What I ended up hitting on was the kind of closest in most obvious thing to them. And then going out from there. (laughs) <laughs> you know, sort of. So I was kind of thinking of it as concentric circles. And then I sorted. And then I had to decide what comes first things, people, uh, you know. So, and let me just say how you organize a book is always, to me, the hardest thing. Even, you know, this one, it's certainly true. But for, for my previous book to this one, I have a file folder that is all the different tables of contents the book had over the course of its creation. <laughs> you know, it's like nine different <laughs> yeah. ways to organize this book. So I do find that that's always a struggle. But for this, I wanted it to be going from one to another of the different topics in the same order throughout and make a certain kind of sense to readers that it was organized in that way. But I didn't want them to have to think about that too much. I thought about it a lot. Well, let's talk about one of those chapters. And I was thinking about the one on stockings. Um, You know, we're all on Zoom these days and with Zoom meetings, and we don't necessarily have to wear shoes in professional meetings, which is kind of nice. And I was curious about the development of that chapter because it seems like such a simple thing these days. But for folks in Plymouth, stockings meant a lot. Right. Right. Yeah, I really like that story. One thing I didn't say about the organization, which I probably should have, is at some point I decided, well, Plymouth is known through its vignette. It's rock, it's Thanksgiving, it's signing of a document, et cetera. So I want my own vignette. And partly that's me making the point that there's lots of rich stories that didn't become part of the national mythology. When the teenager almost blows up the ship, 
there's a story about gunpowder and and guns and you know you can talk about that I had noticed these very cool stories that I wanted to talk about, the chicken that makes its way through the countryside. There were just all these crazy stories that I liked. And one of them was the stalking story. And so I thought, well, if I start with a little story drawn from the records and then I I sort of work it out in the chapter. The other thing I knew about the chapters was they couldn't be very long. I thought for a for a, a reader who's not a sort of dedicated reader of history who's going to be looking at footnotes, I just needed to make them, you know, 10 page-ish <laughs> kind of. I thought open with some vignette, some story from the original records, and then kind of tease out what are the implications of that. So the stalking story, a man visits Boston, which has recently been founded, and he sees stockings hanging on someone's window seal and he takes them and he takes them back to his home in Plymouth and waits until he gets there before he puts them on because he's just stolen them and he doesn't want to get caught. But he's immediately presented by the grand jury, which is basically a group of his neighbors who get together to decide what crimes need to be looked into because he has these stockings and they're red and they know he doesn't own red stocking. One thing I like about this story is if you have the kind of stereotypical view of Plymouth, you might think that it's because they're red. Because the way people in Plymouth are depicted, it's all browns and blacks and grays. And, you know, this idea, this kind of later idea of what it must have been like to be a dour early New England resident, which is completely inaccurate. And so the fact that he has red stockings is not a problem because they're red. The problem is because nobody thinks they're actually his stockings. <laughs> so, so, and the reason for that is because everybody has so few clothes that they just have to wear the same things over and over again. Therefore, all your neighbors know what color your stockings are and how many pairs you own. And when they see red stockings and they, they know that you hadn't had an opportunity to buy red stockings, they call you out on it basically and so he gets he gets called before the court and he gets told that he has to take the stockings back and return them basically <laughs> can't just be wearing these red stockings around and then i use for the rest of the chapter i talk about clothing and how hard it was to get how little of there of it there was what a big deal stockings are i mean stockings come up in other in other places in the in the records where like someone in europe is sending someone a pair of stockings and it's a big deal. They're not an easy thing to come up with in this early period. And people desperately need them. I mean, it's cold in New England. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating example, I think, of the intimacy of that place. But also, as you suggest, it connects us to the wider Atlantic. I mean, he may have gotten those socks in Boston, but they came from somewhere else, where at least the linen to make them did. Right. Right. Yes. And it takes them a long time to be self-sufficient with regard to this. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, Carla, what's on the horizon for you then? What excites you? What are you working on now? Well, this is the first time that I, in in decades that I haven't had another book already in the works. And that's partly because I'm department chair and there's a pandemic and I've been a little distracted. But I'm interested in in maritime things. And I've written an article about why we shouldn't think in terms of pirates in the way that we do. And I've thought a lot about the Navy and the, the English Navy in the Caribbean in the middle of the 17th century. And I've, you know, I've just been thinking a lot about maritime communities and 
technologies. And so I think I'm going to do something along those lines. But what I need is for my library to reopen so I can start getting a lot of books out and reading around about the topic and figure out exactly what it is I want to do. Well, Carla, this has been great. Thanks very much. You know, as I said at the top of the program, it's been a while since we've had a full chat. I'm glad that I'm I'm glad that I'm asking the questions this time and and I'm not in my defense right now. Yes, I certainly am. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you for this. It's been very enjoyable. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your favorite podcasts. To find out more, please check us out at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.